0: So, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Eugene Cash. This is a Sunday night meeting of San Francisco Insight. And we'll have a meditation for half an hour, then a talk and a discussion. Um, I'll give a few minutes of instructions for the meditation. There'll be a longer period to practice in silence please uh, set up a posture that is upright and relaxed. It's helpful to have your back straight without being stiff. And to begin to sense, feel, become embodied so we can establish an embodied awareness. And it's helpful to be balanced between right and left, forward and behind as you sit upright. And let go of any uh, extra holding that might be in your body, whether it's your jaw, letting your jaw be relaxed. Letting your shoulders be at ease, letting your belly be soft. becoming aware of the liveness that is sitting here. One way you may notice the liveness is if you're aware of the temperature of the body that's alive. For those of you in San Francisco, you may notice that it's warm where you are. Of course, one way we know we're alive is if we're breathing. And without having to do anything special, simply become aware of the breath, of the sensations, the movement. The liveness of your inhalation and in the outbreath. mindfulness of the body and breath, the first foundation of mindfulness, allows us to have a sense of composure, collectedness, presence here in the present moment. Please feel free to trust your own guidance. You could stay with the body and the breathing for the whole meditation this evening. And of course, you have the option if you feel collected, composed, centered here, aware, You can simply be aware of whatever is predominant in your awareness. Whether it's sounds like my voice, or if there are thoughts, or emotions, or feelings, or images. Staying very present, aware, awake with any of the phenomena of human life which may arise at any moment all on its own. A sense of being present or presence, and we don't have to control reality, we can simply be aware of it as it appears in our location, not identifying with the thoughts or feelings or sounds or smells or tastes or touch. And not being averse, not getting rid of it, not pushing it away, simply resting in that which knows, resting in awareness. being very kind with whatever arises whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not rest in the space of awareness in which everything appears and disappears Staying very present moment by moment by moment. talk, as I keep forgetting to make at least one announcement every week until right at the very end, which is um, to ask for your support in terms of Donna, donor your generosity in terms of supporting SFI and making an offering for the teachings. Uh, Somebody will put a a link in the chat box that will tell you where to go to make an offering on, I believe it's PayPal. And some of that goes to San Francisco inside, and some of that goes for me. So thank you for your generosity. Um, yeah. I think that's it for now. Um, uh, I asked somebody this week about, oh, what should I talk about? What should I talk about on Sunday night? And they were very clear. They said, talk about dukkha. So I'm going to talk about dukkha tonight, and uh, it's an interesting word. Dukkha. Uh, du means difficulty or badness in the original in the original Pali, and ka means devoid of permanence or devoid of a self that can control or command experience. Dukkha. So it's a difficulty uh, that is not permanent or that things are not permanent and they're difficult or they're bad because they're not permanent. Um, And often the image that's given for dukkha from the tradition is of uh, dukkha is the center of a wheel that's not round, right? It's out of round. And so if you've ever been on a cart or a wagon or some kind of, or even a bicycle where the wheel is out of round, it's very bumpy, it's not comfortable, it's uncomfortable. Um, And so I'm starting with that because there's no good English word that is a simple translation of dukkha. Classically dukkha was translated as suffering, and that's part of dukkha, but it's not the totality of the picture. And um, um, maybe the best word that I know is unsatisfactoriness. That there is God means that something's unsatisfactory and then, or, or that there's friction with the experience or it's unreliable. I'm gonna give you a lot of different words. It's imperfect or it's, uh, it's, in itself, the experience has some kind of insubstantiality to it. Uh, and of course, sorrow, or misery, or disease, or discomfort, or discontentment, or pain, or hurt, are all part of dukkha, right? But you, it's a variety. It's not just one thing. And um, I know that um, Tanjeff uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu, um, He uses the word stress as a translation for dukkha. And there's all kinds of stress. There's um, ordinary stress, like uh, it's too hot in San Francisco today. And so it's stressful for some of us who live on the top floor and it's very warm. and, And you don't want to open the window because the air is so bad today because of the fires. And of course, the fires are part of dukkha. Right. And, and they're a really um, uh, horrible, tragic part of our experience. Now, somebody who was from the East Coast, they said, oh, is that how it's always been in California? And I'm like, no, it is not how it's always been. It's how it is the last few years where we have these fires every year. And so it's part of the dukkha of this time and place and era. Um, and so, traditionally, dukkha itself is talked about. There are three kinds of dukkha. And the first kind is is what's known as ordinary dukkha or dukkha dukkha. is how it's uh, talked about in Nepali, dukkha dukkha. And all of you know about dukkha dukkha, right? There's not anybody who doesn't know about dukkha dukkha because it's part of living a life, there's, you know, different kinds of, um, of um, difficulty that come with being alive in an ordinary way. Like, you know, how many people here have ever felt too busy, right? That's part of just dukkha duka. or, if, you know, or uh, like I went to go um, cash a check, not cash, deposit a check at the bank. Um, which I like to do. It's like, a, I, there's a nice walk that I have that gets me to a bank and I get to deposit a check. And, uh, and of course I get to the bank and I don't, I've never, I haven't signed the check and I haven't, I haven't stamped the check. So I can't deposit the check. That's kind of duka dukkha, just ordinary dukkha. In In my own language, it's shit happens. Right. And it's not extraordinary. It's ordinary stuff happens. Right. And then um, uh, and then there's another level of dukkha. and of, Yeah. Another level of dukkha called the Paranama dukkha. The Paranama dukkha. And it's the dukkha produced by change. Right. That whatever we have Whatever we like, whatever is good, will change, right? If we're happy, that's not going to last forever. There's change. Things are impermanent. And there's a kind of, of dukkha, like we can't get one perfect state of mind and stay there forever. Or we can't, or our body may feel really good one day and not good the next day. And of course, it has the reverse. It's some days our body feels bad and then it feels better the next day. But it's, it's the dukkha of impermanence. We can't count on what's going to happen. We can't control what's going to happen. We can, we can help it a little bit. We can give it our best, but we're not in control. And then the third kind of dukkha is called sankara dukkha. And it's, uh, the Buddha said, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha. All conditioned phenomena are dukkha. And people think that means, oh, everything is dukkha, which is not what he's saying. He's saying all conditioned phenomena is dukkha. And he's pointing at the things we identify with or get affected to or believe are I, me, or mine right it's really part of the five aggregates which he also said the five aggregates are all dukkha and the five aggregates are form feeling formations um, um, uh, form feeling perception formations and consciousness and uh and form means body basically and feeling is the is the tone of any moment of existence which can be pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, and he's saying they're all dukkha because there's no uh, counting on any of them to be the way we want them to be. That's part of. It's similar to the to the uh, the paranama dukkha. They're all changing, and but we're not in control of any of it, and um, and that's part of the misunderstanding of who and what we are is we think we can control things. And we think there's somebody here who should be able to control things, or direct things or be in charge of things. And of course, there is a relative on the dukkha dukkha level, there is that possibility where, you know, I'm going to make my house as comfortable as possible, when it's, you know, 90 degrees inside of here. But, but um, there's another level of the dukkha, which has to do with my relationship to the heat itself. And that has to do with form, how the body feels when it's hot, and the uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutralness of it, or the, uh, my perception of what's causing it, or my ideas about it, the formations, and then my consciousness itself, feeling open or closed or tight around what I believe is true and so suffering and this is why suffering is such an interesting word not to just use that one word is not inherent in the phenomena it's in our relationship to the phenomena it's in how we relate to reality or this moment or the truth and that basic unsatisfactoriness of things is just part of the way it is it's not a mistake and how we relate to the unsatisfactoriness that's where we have some some um i'm going to say will but it's not the word i'm looking for we have some input in how we relate to each moment how we respond and so relationship becomes excuse me, practice becomes a relational practice with the experience of each moment of being alive. Right? And the Buddha said, you know, that he taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And that that's possible to start to let go of dukkha or not be identified with it, or not be connected to it, or not believe it at times. And so of course, one of the questions for you to ask yourself is, what does it mean to be with dukkha, to be aware of it, to practice with it? And how do you do it? And uh, what keeps you from practicing with it? Right? Because dukkha comes in different forms, as we're already describing in terms of dukkha, dukkha, and para-vanama dukkha, and sankhara dukkha. And then there's um, mental dukkha and physical dukkha, and dukkha that's internal and dukkha that's external. And those are all just part of reality. It's not a mistake. It's part part of the difficulty of dukkha is it can be very potent. So, so for myself, I watch my own internal dukkha, right? Which has to do with my heart mind and body, right? It's like it's in my thoughts, my feelings, my beliefs, my feelings, my emotions. And there's all different kinds of unsatisfactoriness that happens. And I'm not, I'm not happy about being warm today, which is, of course, just minor, low-class dukkha. Right? I don't like being hot. I like living in San Francisco, and it's like, please bring the fog back in immediately. And uh, of course, I have dukkha about the fog when it's here too much, right? Because I don't like the fog being here all the time. I like, I want what I want, which is part of some, uh, uh, Sankara dukkha which is the identification with my body, heart, mind is I believe I'm here and I should get what I want, or uh, it will make me happy if I get what I want. And of course, it's nice to get some things we want. That's all good, but we're not going to get everything we want. That's not how reality works, at least not how my reality works. And yet, I can be fine, even though I don't get what I want. And so being aware of my heart and mind and body allows for some freedom. And so the awareness, the practice, is to be with the dukkha and not just be in reaction to the dukkha, not try to push it away, not to grab onto it either as, oh, that's me. That's my identity. I'm a this kind of person, or that kind of person, or I'm an angry woman, or I'm a sad man, or I'm a something that we just identify with as that's who we are. Hmm. Awareness is more like stepping back and seeing the big picture. And it's not... Creating equanimity, it's where equanimity arises from, is seeing and understanding how reality works, the causes and conditions of life, of this moment, of whatever form of dukkha we might have. And of course, you know, I'm describing a little internal dukkha, external dukkha has to do with anything. Uh, quote, outside of us, right? So walking around and uh, I was, you know, I walk in the park a lot and there's a lot of people who don't have homes and who are suffering. And so there's a lot of external dukkha that I see and that touches me or impacts me or at times I have a reaction to. And sometimes I would, I want to help and I do help at times. You know, whether it's just being kind or with money or food or something. And then other times I have a reaction. It's like, no, I don't want to deal with you now. I want my own world. I want what I want. Right. And I noticed that today I was walking. Um, this wasn't in the park. I was walking back on the street and, um, and a guy came around the corner. And I'm, I saw, and I try to be polite. I'm wearing my mask. I try to stay on one side. If people are coming, I stay far to that side so they can get by and we're not uh, being contagious together if either of us are contagious. And, um, and this guy came right around the corner and he did this. He's done this before. He goes and he's like, I'm on the right side, but he wants to walk right where I'm walking. And he's a big guy. And last time I really we really did a little dance together right because i didn't want to move out of my spot it was my spot and this time he came around the corner and i just didn't want to deal with him so i moved over so he could walk where he wanted to walk which was his spot right you know of course you hear the ludicrous kind of dukkha of thinking we have a spot where we're walking and it's ours that we own it or something and I'm, i'm owning my own ludicrous you know i like this is how we this is how it should be or it's supposed to be you know you walk on the right and if i'm on the other side i'll walk the if i'm going the other way i'll walk on that right side anyhow he he uh, and but what was most interesting was recognizing the dukkha was recognizing his dukkha because i could see both times i ran into him i could see he was not a happy person. That was clear. That was he didn't have to tell me he wasn't happy. His demeanor was not happy. His affect was not happy. And so but this time, I was more relaxed about it because I'm getting to know him now, because we keep running into each other like this. And so I moved. And I felt my compassion for him. Oh, this guy's having a hard time. You know, let him have the the space that I think is my space, and um, and that's just part of what happens when we open to dukkha both internally and externally. Is there's a kind of empathy that can arise for ourselves and for others both, and that's an important quality of practice. That practice starts to open the heart up to kindness and to care and to compassion, right? And appreciating one's foibles, which I hope you all appreciate your own foibles. Because if you're like me, you may have plenty of them. Because believe me, I have my own fair share of foibles. It's a great word, isn't it? Foibles, I don't even know what it means exactly, but but I know I have them either way, (laughs) whatever it means. Sayada has said, he said if there is no understanding, there will will immediately be resistance to the unpleasant experience. Sayada Uteshani, if there is no understanding, there will immediately be resistance to the unpleasant experience. We need to learn to accept things as they are and that also means accepting difficult situations as they are and so on a certain level he's saying accepting dukkha we're not just trying to get rid of it we're trying to wake up through it right and so the other piece the other way i was thinking about this when somebody said talk about dukkha i said oh yeah it's the first noble truth it's the truth of dukkha it's just the truth of dukkha it's not get rid of dukkha or fix dukkha or dukkha is wrong or bad no, it's just the truth. And we wanna come into contact with the truth because as it's said in other traditions, the truth will set you free. And that is a great truth. So again, as I was saying, you know, it's good to reflect on what kind of dukkha one has, right? Personal dukkha, psychological dukkha, physical dukkha, right, which I've had plenty of physical dukkha. And uh, I'm always amazed that my body works well at all these days, because I've broken so much of it at different times. Uh, But it's, it's actually great. I'm like, totally wild that how dukkha is not permanent. And so identifying as someone with a broken body would not be so helpful, even though I've had a broken body. Um, and it's the same with psychological dukkha. I've, got, I've had plenty of psychological dukkha in my life. You know, even many of you know this, I even institutionalized in a mental hospital when I was a kid. You know, that was, a, that was some serious dukkha. Uh, but it was also the doorway. To things getting better, which is, of course, one of the paradoxes of dukkha being the first truth, right? The truth of dukkha leads to the understanding of the causes and conditions of dukkha, which leads to the end of dukkha, right? And I just said the first, second, third noble truths. And so you see, it's a continuum, the teaching on dukkha in Buddhism. And so, yeah, different kinds of dukkha, psychological, physical, also just to get everything into the mix here, social dukkha, uh, political dukkha, which we're in the midst of that I've been talking about in terms of the possibility of fascism in America and the kind of ignorant um, uh, denial of what's true in order to win elections and things like that. I'm gonna open some shades to get a little more light in here. Excuse me a second. Eugene, you're muted. You you missed the best thing I said. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, I was saying the different kinds of dukkha, social dukkha, political dukkha, economic dukkha. I mean, for so many people right now, for so many of us, this is a really hard time. And uh, it's not clarifying as quickly as we would like it because of the, you know, of the um, health dukkha of COVID-19. And of course, the other kinds of dukkha, there's cultural dukkha and racial dukkha and sexual dukkha. I mean, and just the different um, pockets of prejudice and bias and fear that is part of the collective reality we all live in, right? It's all different kinds of dukkha, and you may all, depending on who you are and what your conditions are, what your your particulars are, you may be experiencing some of those, right, and of course there's always relational dukkha with friends or family or partner and, and, you know, I mean Pam and I both teach the dharma and people often idealize our relationship, but we have our own relational dukkha. It's just part of the deal. If you're with somebody, if you live with somebody, and and it's a good part of the deal, which is the paradox. Meaning because if you work with the dukkha, things can open up and you can both be freer and happier and more loving together. And of course, then it's the dukkha of being alone, which is a really big dukkha right now and really hard for a lot of of us who are alone. And, um, you know, I mean, now there's a little more interactiveness and there may be more than I know, because Pam and I have been very slow to interact with people. We have a couple, we have two couples that we interact with and... uh, you know, six feet apart and masks and all that. But but we go to their place and they come here and uh, uh, partly because we're high risk. And especially, I always think it's Pam who's high risk, but I'm high risk too, they keep telling me. And so one of the paradoxes that I've said is that dukkha leads to freedom. Dukkha leads to the end of dukkha. As Oscar Wilde, the poet said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And it's true, it's part of the fabric of reality, Dukkha, and it leads to awakening, it leads to understanding, it leads to realization. And here, you know, I've been mentioning to all of you, I've been listening to podcasts these days and hearing different people. And I just listened to an old podcast of Mary Oliver, who's a poet. And I'll read you one of her most famous poems that people usually really like. She says, You do not have to be good. Let me just that line. She could stop right there. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair. Tell me about your despair, and I will tell you about mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. calls to you like the wild geese harsh and exciting over and over announcing your place in the family of things it's a beautiful poem that i've used for many years in the dharma and even when i was before i was teaching people were using it and and um it's so it's been used so much i'm like a little it's a little I don't use it anymore. It's like old, it's old. But it but after hearing this podcast about Mary, I was so moved by her story, which I've never heard before. And so Mary Oliver is quite a well known poet. And she's won whatever the prizes are Pulitzer Prize, things like that, for her work. And I've always liked her poet, poetry, but I've heard tons of it. So I'm not so impressed anymore. But It was illuminating to hear her personal story of her childhood and her difficulty and her dukkha that she's gone through as a person, as a human being. And so she was uh, very poor and came from a very poor family. I believe it was Ohio and she was abused in her home as a child, as a young girl. And um, and she would go outside to get away from her family. And she would spend her time out in nature because nature cared for her. Nature didn't hurt her. And she started writing poems when she was 14. Out in nature, she would take a little book out with her and she would just write. And she said in the podcast, she said, you know, really, I saved myself because it was so bad in my family and of course many people have had similar or difficult experiences with their family maybe not as extreme as mary oliver had but very difficult and so and she said she spent most of her time outside Um, the trauma of her house and childhood is how she talked about it and that poetry and nature saved her and it's really a beautiful Uh, Story, Because you even hear in this poem about, you know, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And she loved nature. She loved it. And nature loved her back. But as she goes through the poem, she says, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, you hear the difficulty, the dukkha because she had a very, very lonely childhood, right? And here's another poem that she writes about Dukkha. She said, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. somebody I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. And it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. And she's talking about Dukkha as she was able to work with it, be with it, understand it, metabolize it as an adult. And again, I'll get one more from Mary. She said, I go down to the shore in the morning. And depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out. And I say, oh, oh, I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? So she goes, she goes to the ocean. She says, oh, I'm miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I have work to do. To very interesting poem, I never got it before today. And I just, and she there's something she understood about not being too connected to one's dukkha to too identified with it, to being kind to oneself, respectful of one's dukkha for sure, not not just bypass it, but also not make it an identity. And if it's become an identity, be very kind to the one who believes it is one's ad- identity. And there was one other piece that I I just know about that, that I've researched a little about this, about psychologists who study uh, post-traumatic, um, they have what they call post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah, it sounds it's paradoxical, right? It sounds doesn't work that way. Uh, But post traumatic growth, um, find that finds that many people thrive in the aftermath of adversity. So it's not in the dukkha. But as we start to let go of the dukkha or be free of the dukkha, or not be identified with it, there's something more here. And one of the examples they gave in a book called wired to create, unraveling the mysteries of the creative mind, what wired to create. They talk about Freda Kahlo, the great artist, and that most her most famous self-portraits, some of her most famous portraits depict her in a hospital bed naked and bleeding, connected by a web of red veins to floating objects that include snails and flowers and bones and fetus. And that's a famous painting of hers and kind of surreal. But she made these very powerful rendings of her miscarriage, right, It's what she was painting about. And it's one of the ways she began to metabolize the suffering, the dukkha, the heartache of losing a child. And, And she experienced, actually went on to say what I was reading that that uh, her paint the painting for her carries with it the message of pain and that she experienced multiple miscarriages she had childhood polio and other misfortunes and she put all of that into her iconic self-portraits right and so this term post-traumatic growth uh, psychologist talked about it in the 70s in the 90s And they said up to 70% of trauma survivors report some positive psychological growth research has found. Growth after trauma can take a number of different forms, including a greater appreciation for life, the identification of new possibilities for one's life, more satisfying interpersonal relationships, a richer spiritual life, and a connection to something greater than oneself as well as a sense of personal strength. And it is one of the paradoxes we often can't or don't talk about after we go through difficulty and it's and we've let go of it or it's let go of us, that there's something more here about who and what we are. And I think I'll end with... I've got a bunch of poems, but I'm going to end with a poem uh, from Ghalib, who said, For the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Unbearable pain becomes its own cure. For the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Unbearable pain becomes its own cure. Travel far enough through into sorrow tears turn to sighing. Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn to sighing. In this way, we learn how water can die into air. When after heavy rain, the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wet themselves clear to the end? If you want to know the miracle how wind can polish the mirror, look, the shining grass grows green in spring. It's the roses unfolding, Galib, that creates a desire to see. In every color and circumstance, may the eyes be open for whatever comes. So those are a few thoughts tonight about dukkha, and of course I love to hear your thoughts. Any questions, comments, reactions, uh, agreements, agreeing, don't agree, and of course, go to the participants button at the bottom of your screen and, and raise your hand and I'll call on you. So David, please unmute yourself.
1: Hi, Eugene.
0: Uh, wait, let me put it on uh, speaker view so I can find you. Yeah, hi, David. Hi,
1: so, Eugene, um, yeah, that, that really resonated with me, what uh, you just said about the uh, uh, growth, uh, post-traumatic growth. Or, uh, wait, no, wait. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember, at the start of the crisis, I, I jumped on your, your Zoom uh, group and, uh, yeah, on March 2nd, we lost our, our little baby, Asha uh in
0: uh a... again i missed that
1: oh my our baby was stillborn yeah that, so. yeah
0: now i'm remembering got it yes
1: and you uh you recommended um you know doing meta for the baby yes and uh, yeah that was that was really helpful you know i think for myself and yeah just you know for the experience uh-huh. Yeah, it helped me, you know, really get in touch with the loss and the grief, uh, etc. But, uh, yeah, definitely. I, I remember I had, there was a priest, uh, a Catholic priest, who kind of did a little service for us,
2: uh-huh.
1: and um, you know, he said, you know, you know, after six months, if I see you again, you'll tell me about the blessings,
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, yeah, you know, it was you know it was it was definitely very fortunate it could have gone like a dark way in terms of uh, blame blaming ourselves etc etc but you know my wife definitely turned towards her art and uh, yeah we got that uh you know that um you know appreciation of life and uh possibility i guess we were just you know it was a kick in the ass it knocked us out of our routine and yeah. definitely some anger came out you know towards ending work and uh you know with the whole political situation so you know it wasn't all smooth sailing but uh yeah it's you know it's just it's it's not
0: it's not supposed to be smooth sailing it isn't smooth sailing it's life yeah and yeah so i'm everything i'm hearing though really good i'm really touched and happy that uh you were able the meta was helpful for you and your wife and the baby and i appreciate what your priest said right
1: yeah and i guess i just i suppose i i just wanted to put that out there but i also wanted to you know did you do you you know at this stage you know i I guess grieving is all unique to everyone but have you any advice for me now i i kind of fell away from doing the the meta uh Uh, but uh, have you any general advice, you know, from, you know, six or seven months in?
0: Um, I don't have any general advice. The one thing, if you still feel like you need to meta- keep metabolizing the grief, then make it a practice. In other words, um, spend uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes every day uh, with your grief. And what that means is, um, If your wife drew any pictures of the baby, uh, then take a picture of the picture and put it on an altar, sit with it, see what comes. And of course, you're not in control of it. You're just giving your psyche space to know, okay, this is grief time. And if there's grief, then let it happen. If there's not, that's okay. It, it's a practice to see it, it, what really what I'm suggesting is you, give, you formalize uh, space for the psyche so the psyche knows, okay, this is time to grieve if there's grief. And if there's not, then that's not a problem either. You don't have to keep grieving. Grief has its own waves, right? And its own timeline.
1: Thank you, Eugene.
0: Okay, thank you. Glad you're here. I do. Ms. Kaffa, please unmute.
3: My name is Julia, but I'm a teacher, so that's my Zoom says Ms. But
0: that's okay. Julia. Hi, Julia.
3: Hello. Um, there was something that was just sitting a little bit awkward about please. talking about I mean, and I definitely agree that, that growth and learning, you know, as a teacher, <laughs> right? Like uh, we have this curve of like, you're going to end up down in the dumps. You're going to be confused and lost and frustrated and stuck before you can start to make sense out of something new, right? Like every learning process, whether it's emotional or mathematical, is going to have that. You're going to be stuck in the muck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I,
0: I, I don't know if I would put it that way, but I get the stuck part. I don't know if it's muck, but go ahead.
3: something right you're
0: gonna
3: gonna feel unsettled and the more and the more uh, practice you have with going through that space the more ease you have with it but I also have um, I'm very sensitive to um, putting sort of there's there's a tendency among some people in education to talk about grit right like our students need to be persevering more, you know, we need to look at this kid who who doesn't have, his parents never feed them and they just brought two pieces of bread to school every day pretending that it was a sandwich and why can't all our struggling kids be like that? And I look at that and I'm like, no, please, no, right? No, don't, don't ask people to be this way. Um, and there's, and what it comes down to, I think, is that there is a very important and very qualitative difference between suffering alone and suffering in community. And, and we know that, that's, that, that the antidote to trauma, right? The thing that allows trauma to then become something that we heal through and grow through and find a level of peace with is having love, right? Did the experience leave you understanding that love will persevere? Or did the experience leave you understanding that you are lonely and unworthy,
0: right? That you're only what?
3: lonely and unworthy of
0: Mm love right
3: and and I think that that the second thing happens sometimes Mm -hmm. right When you have a a family who doesn't understand how to talk about feelings and will leave you in your grief alone and you you come to believe that you're never supposed to speak of it right like that was me with my father's death when I was six Mm -hmm. I also have had students in foster care right and there's just no one there to Mm -hmm. talk with them no one that they trust to, to grieve for you know their their mother's addiction right and and students who are watching somebody you know get shot and their you know and and there's just nobody there's nobody stable in your life there's no one and that and that trauma doesn't produ- doesn't bl- blossom into something right, right? but right.
0: of course only when it gets metabolized does it blossom into something and so you're talking about the causes and conditions that don't support the metabolization, which really means of feeling it fully and experiencing it fully and being cared for so that you can let it move through you, right? Emotion that the movement can happen. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very important. And it's why, the bigger picture of our interconnectedness is so important because really we're just all here together. And, you know, I mean, I have my own um, biases about how the government should function and take care of everybody, but that's not a a collective point of view yet. Okay, yeah, thank you. Julia, I'm just trying to get the name. Okay, Okay. who else? Who else is putting their hand up? Maggie, hi Maggie. Please unmute yourself.
2: Hi there, hi everybody. Um, hey. So much tonight, Eugene, for this talk. Um, the one quote You said stuck with me. We're not trying to get rid of dukkha. We're trying to wake up through dukkha. Yeah. And the second part, we're trying to wake up through dukkha, really resonated with me because my own life, I'm just, I'm finding. I'm finding how beautiful that process can be, but to not deny the level of pain.
0: Very important.
2: Yeah, and in that pain, what I'm trying to explore and learn myself is how I nurture myself while balancing that pain.
0: Uh-huh, yes, beautiful. Yeah. really and important.
2: Yeah, and what you said about Mary Oliver, how it just it spoke to me how she found poetry in in nature like that. I I find that as a form of (coughs) self-care in that process. And I get right now I'm trying to figure out what are my resources. Mm -hmm. I'm just that's what I wanted to share tonight. That's I'm on this quest and I'm trying to explore.
0: Well, no, it's, it's beautiful because Mary Oliver, uh, as she said, she saved herself with, the po- with nature first. And, and I, I didn't say this, but she was so poor. She wasn't just um, getting the beauty of nature, which she was getting and everything, but she was getting food out in nature too, because they didn't have enough food mean she was very poor, which I didn't know at all. And then, and so you, and of course, I talked last week about Robin uh, Wall Kimmerer who was um, a, a, an indigenous person who's also um, a botanist and um, talked about so much in my readings about her and what I heard her talk about on her podcast about how much nature has to give us even in terms of food she said oh yeah you you could walk almost anywhere and eat so many different things that we're not aware of because we're so disconnected from nature and and i'm not saying that disconnection is a judgment because i'm totally a detroit and new york city guy but but it is it's so amazing you can walk out and there's berries and there's leaves and there's there's different things if we knew better we could eat these things if we needed to and so looking for what's nurturing is a very important and and I so love that you said it because when I was listening to the whole Mary Oliver thing it's one of the words I wrote down which is nourishment because she used the word about how there was so much nourishment in nature for her and uh And I I just like the word. It's very rich and alive, right? To be nourished and what nourishes us and what nourishes us to go through dukkha and the causes and conditions of dukkha and take us to the end of dukkha. And that's how I'm still understanding when I'm talking about dukkha, I am framing it in the Four Noble Truths language. And to really keep hearing that movement that happens by by being aware of the truth of Mm Dukkha and then seeing that on a certain level, at some point, it's not personal, even when- Sorry,
2: it's it's not what?
0: It's not personal, personal. even when it's totally personal, it's not personal. Like my thing, this is just a little thing, but the thing with this guy, we both were trying to walk in the same space you know, the first time this happened, I took it really personally. Like, you can't walk in my fucking space. You're, you're trying to make me move? No. You know, but but really when I saw him this time and I saw his unhappiness, oh, it's not about me. He doesn't even know me. I don't even know him. It's not personal. I mean, this is just a little thing, but it's still, even on some of the biggest things, the biggest dukkha that I know, It's um, it's like I think about a big dukkha, I think about racism, and I think about the kind of prejudice and bias and um, what I call insanity of believing in the whole myth of race, which is a 400 year old myth in this country. And, um, and of course, if you're a Black person, that is very personal. But on another level, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do, and this is where uh, Resmaa Medicum is really great. He talks about the dukkha, oh, that's <laughs> that's great. He talks about the dukkha that the white bodies brought from Europe because they've been fused so much dukkha. And so they just continued the kind of prejudice in another form that works for them in this country, right? So it's really, you know, that's, yeah. And so that's part of the way the metabolization happens is by understanding the truth of dukkha and understanding the causes and conditions of dukkha, which Resma Medicum really, he's so wise in his writing, in my opinion, so.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Good Thank you. Luck. Thank you. Anybody else? I a note that my microphone's not working so good. So, how is it now? Is that any better? No, it's not so good. Hmm?
2: It's a bit hard to hear still for me. No, yeah,
0: that's strange. Let's try some more. How's that? Is that better? Worse? Same? No. I think that's what we're going to get today. We've got Techno Duca. Anybody else want to speak? You.
2: Um, hi Eugene, can you hear me okay?
0: Yeah, you sound better than I do. Evan, aren't you? Yeah,
2: it's, a, it's not a. It's maybe a request, not a question, but for the next week, um, because um, what how Buddha taught the dukkha to, um that's a, as a, the reason for dukkha uh, is the notion of the self. So I would love to hear more about not-self and not-ta. Self
0: and not uh, well, next week. Yeah. self and not self Okay, I'm gonna consider it uh, really, and I'm uh, open to it. Um, it's an idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good idea, and and because I was uh, thinking, well, maybe I would just do the first noble truth and the second noble truth and the third noble truth, and then the fourth noble truth, something like that. Yeah, cool. yeah. So yeah, which would be interesting, also. But I love that idea of talking more about self and not self, and seeing who would even give that talk. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Well, to be honest, I am hot as hell and would like to go outside. So I'm gonna stop now even though we have a couple of minutes. And let's just sit for a minute and we'll do a little sharing of merit. And taking a moment to appreciate our good fortune that we have the time, place, opportunity to study the Dharma together and to wake up to the truth of Dukkha and continue to wake up to the possibilities of being free from Dukkha. And uh, happily sharing our good fortune in every direction, in every realm, in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from misunderstanding the truth of who and what we are. May we all wake up together realizing our true nature a Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. I think we're doing one new thing here. I think Paul or Nina, you have to do it. We're telling people they could unmute and want and say something if they want. There was something, there was a request from Paul. And so we said we'd give it a try. So you could like say hi, bye, or or see you later, or nothing. You don't have to say anything. You don't you don't have to do anything.
2: Boible.
0: <laughs> More One, Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Cool. Rudy. Good, night. Good, night. Good, Good night. to see you. Good
3: Bye. Bye-bye. Thank Thank you care. You,
0: Good night. Good night. Good night, Paul.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed, please visit